Jesus. And if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please join me in John chapter 17. We're going to be looking over John 17. Over the last few weeks, we've kind of gone through it, um, pulling out a few themes, a few truths that apply to the unity that surrounds God's people. So we'll finish up uh, today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read John 17 in its entirety, um, though we'll only be looking at certain passages here. I'll read it all for the appropriate context. So John chapter 17, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, starting at verse 1. And it reads, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them 
and I in them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, you are the great creator, the giver and sustainer of life. And it is by your hand that all things are given to us. Father, we are here this morning to glorify and exalt you, to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I ask that with the next few minutes that we have through the preaching and teaching of your word, Father, that your name would be exalted, that Jesus Christ would be glorified through this time. And, Father, I ask that any that may be in here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that haven't been transformed and born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this place this morning, changing lives, transforming hearts, and opening eyes to see the glory and the majesty of the Savior that is Jesus Christ. Would you be honored through this time? Would this be pleasing to you? Lord, would you assist me? Would your spirit lead me to say only what is necessary to preach boldly yet humbly for your glory? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we have indeed been doing a survey, so to speak, of John chapter 17. We've looked at Jesus's high priestly prayer, and this is really a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's breathtaking as we see Jesus's concern, the love, the affection that he has for his disciples. You see, we find great encouragement here as Jesus prays for these 11 men. See, these men who had walked with Jesus over the last three years. But what we find is Jesus doesn't just pray for them, but he prays for every believer, for every person that would come to believe, even through the testimony of these men. So let's, I just want to stop there for a second. Listen, if you're in this room this morning and you're a believer, you're a Christian, that means Jesus prayed for you. That should be a comfort to somebody today. You see, as we studied this passage, we found that Christ has a desire for his followers to be unified, primarily because our unity glorifies our maker. You see, it marks us off distinctly as the people of God. What we've also found is that what we're united around matters, that what we unite ourselves around, that's, that's significant. You see, as those that Christ has chosen and saved, we must be united around the truth namely the foundation of God's word and the gospel. You see, unity is a wonderful concept. I think it's something we all enjoy, we all delight in, we all appreciate unity. But real, true, and lasting unity is only found amongst God's people insofar as it is found and centered around God's truth. See, the unity of God's people goes beyond this life as well. We've seen that last week as we talked about uh, the eternal implications of Christ and his saving work and what that means for God's people. See, the unity that we have goes beyond this life even into the next one. So this morning as we finish the Advent season, what I want to talk about this morning is one final attribute of the unity of God's people, and that's the loving unity that we should display. You see, as the body of Christ, love is an essential piece to who we are. It's a foundational motivation even as we consider our unity. Love, it's primary, 
See, it's a crucial principle, and it's not just something that I think is important. It's obviously something that Jesus thinks is important because he continues to emphasize it over and over and over again to his disciples. So this morning, as we have this conversation, I have three simple points that I want to make. Every Southern Baptist preacher should have three points, right? It's a typical thing. I have just three points that I want to make this morning. And if you're taking notes here, I'm going to give them to you now so you can write them down, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, we're going to talk about God's love for us. That's where it's got to begin. God's love for us. Number two, we'll talk about our love for him. Our love for him. And then number three, we'll talk about our love for each other. So God's love for us, our love for him, and then finally, our love for one another. And I believe that as we look at this high priestly prayer, we're going to find elements of all of these truths here. And I hope that this would be an encouragement to you as you leave this place today, that you focus primarily, first and foremost, on God's love for you. But then you think about the implications of that, and I hope that that moves you to a place of great affections for Christ, to where you love him. And then you look at your brothers and sisters finally and that you love them well. And we're united around this idea of love, of Christ-like love. So that's my goal. That's kind of where we're marching this morning. So let's begin. Number one, God's love for us. You see, this is an obvious point as the love of God is evident throughout the pages of Scripture. We see this all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You see, but here in John 17, as Jesus prays for his disciples, he begins here and he lifts his eyes to heaven. And he says to the Father, now the hour has come. You see, this is a phrase we all should be familiar with as we've seen this time and time again in the gospel according to John. We see this idea of the hour. And so we've talked about this before, but the hour is essentially referring to the moment of Jesus' death and crucifixion and his glorification. You see, the moment for which Christ has come had finally arrived. You see, the three years of his public ministry and his teaching and the three years that he had privately ministered to the disciples, it's all leading to this moment. You see, it's time for Jesus to die. But this is no ordinary death. This isn't a death that's without purpose. This isn't a death that's meaningless. This is all part of God's divine plan for salvation. You see, it's really incredible to think about if you try to wrap your mind around this. The realities of the cross, that something so brutal, so horrendous as the cross and the crucifixion of Christ is really a demonstration of God's love for his people. You see, God looks at the helpless state of humanity He sees that people are separated from him because of their sins and that humanity is desperate, it's broken, it's corrupt. And that as broken, corrupted, sinful human beings, we have no ability to save ourselves. See, that we're condemned, we're doomed to death and destruction, destined to stand under the righteous wrath of God. See, but God, See, God loves his people so greatly that he provides a lamb for the slaughter, a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. You see, when we look at the cross, it's this magnificent paradox. The cross is both brutal and beautiful. 
You see, the brutality of the cross, it shows us the seriousness of sin, yet it also shows us the depths of God's love. You see, Paul writes about this reality. In Romans 5, 8, he says this. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, that is about as, as straightforward as it's going to get. That is crystal clear. The cross, Christ's crucifixion, his death, his humiliation was because God loves his people. Amen, somebody. Nobody's excited about that. Moving on. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you're, maybe you're wondering, maybe you're wrestling through this reality. Maybe you believe that there's a great creator somewhere and it's like, but does he care about me? Does he love me at all? Listen, look no further than the cross. See, God has gone to great lengths to provide salvation to sinners. He's gone so far as to offer his only son, Jesus Christ. You see, the reason that we celebrate now, see, I think a lot of people forget this. See, the reason we celebrate the Advent season, the reason that we rejoice at this time of year, and really as Christians, we rejoice every day. The reason that we can celebrate constantly is because God has come to man. God has come to man. That shows how greatly he loves his people. You see, John even writes about this truth as he opens his gospel account. If you go back to John chapter 1 with, with me, John 1, I'm going to read this briefly. If you want to flip back there, you can. You don't have to. I want to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll drop down and look at verse 14. See, the reason that we celebrate this Advent season, that we celebrate Christmas time, is because of the incarnation. It's because God has come to men. Let's look at John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Listen, that word, it's, that's, that's Jesus. John's writing about Jesus here, God the Son. We all on the same page? Not if you're tracking with me. Amen. All right. Let's drop down and look at verse 14, because here's where we really celebrate this season. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise God. If you sit here and you say, man, how great is God's love for us? That shows you how great it is that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would step out of heaven and lay aside his heavenly privileges, yet surrendering none of his deity. You see, the Son of God would come and he would wrap himself in flesh, being born of a virgin. This pedestrian, mundane, even humble birth. See, he's born in this stall in Bethlehem. God the Son has come and he dwells amongst sinful humanity. See, the song that we just sang, Emmanuel, that means God with us. See, God has come. This is beautiful because we owned 100% of the guilt, but God has come and done 100% of the work. We're the ones who are guilty. We're the ones who had rebelled against God, who had sinned against him and transgressed his word. And what does God do? He sends his son to come and fix what we had fractured. 
See, even if you look at John 17 and verse 3 where Jesus says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So God sends his son to come to earth to save and to redeem. But listen, Jesus doesn't just come. He comes for a purpose. See, he lives this humble yet perfect life. You see, that's what we talk about, Jesus' active obedience, right? He perfectly fulfills the law and his perfections and his holiness. And then we talk about Jesus' passive obedience where he lays down his life, that he perfectly submits to the will of the Father, and he lays down his life for the freedom of his people, absorbing the righteous wrath of God to save the ones that God have chosen. What a beautiful reality that is to us this morning. That's God's love for you. If you're in here this morning and you're a Christian, if you're a believer, and that's what God has done for you. See, Christ shows us just how deep the Father's love truly is for those that he has chosen, for the ones he's adopted as sons and daughters and gathered together. See, that's what we're united around, primarily. It's God's love for us. See, that changes everything. Christian, you can rejoice in that truth this morning. That should be what unifies us as his people. We should be centered around this truth. See, Christ shows great affection here as he prays for his disciples. You see, he's come to redeem. I want to look at verse 12 quickly because we see that not only does he pray for them, but then he preserves them as well. Look at verse 12, and it says this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So listen, quickly, that shows us how God, or Jesus, preserves his people, how he kept his disciples. Now, let's drop down and look at verse 15, because he says something else here. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, this is significant because Jesus, knowing he's about to ascend to the Father, he's going to the cross, he's going to die, and then he'll ascend back to the Father. He'll be leaving this world. As he's preparing to depart out of the world, he turns to the Father and he asks him to keep those from the evil one. And you see, this is significant because we know that whatever Jesus prays for, the Father will grant him. So these aren't vain, empty, meaningless prayers. Whatever Jesus is praying for is perfectly in line with the will of the Father. There is no confusion or conflict amongst the Godhead. And so Jesus prays and says, Lord, would you preserve them from the evil one? You see, this highlights the loving protection. Not only does God love us enough to come to save us, but also to protect his people, to preserve them, to lovingly keep them as a father does his children. See, that's the beautiful picture that we get throughout the scriptures. See, God is a loving father. So he's going to keep us. He's going to preserve us. You see, Jesus is an infinitely capable Savior. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Those that he saves are eternally secure. It's a done deal. There's no doubt 
There's no question. It's not like Jesus saves you part of the way and you got to go the rest. Now, the book of Hebrews reminds us he saves to the uttermost. That's completely. So even Christian in here this morning, if you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, you're wrestling with some things, understand that you are lovingly preserved by an infinitely capable God. Not by your performance or what you think you're able to do. You are being kept and lovingly protected by God. He says even from the evil one, even from the schemes of the enemy. If God saved you, you will endure to the end because he is faithful. Because he is faithful. See, that's how much he loves us, that he preserves his people. See, in fact, the love of God, as his children, we enjoy the same type of love that was reserved for his son. Look at verse 23. Jesus says this, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is an incredible verse. The implications here are really breathtaking. Listen, that the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is robed in majesty, worthy of all praise, would love us the way that he loves Jesus. I hope that's not lost on you this morning. That's really more than I can even fathom and comprehend because I know myself, and I'm not worthy of that. But that's the kind of love that God aims at his children. The same way in which he loves Jesus, the son. Listen, we should be joined together as one, primarily united by God's love for us, together under the banner of the gospel as his people covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's where we must begin. As we look around at the people in this room, the believers in this room, the Christians in this room, what are we united by? That God loves us. And that changes everything. I hope that's not a small detail in your life. I hope that's a primary, a, a primary motivation for you. See, we rest securely in the eternal and the steadfast love of God. And it only makes sense that that's, that's where we would begin. As he really is the reality of everything else flows from that. That's where we start, that there is this great creator who loves us deeply and infinitely. And from that comes everything else. See, that really leads me to point number two. So that would, that's what leads us to our love for him, is his love for us. Right? See, knowing that we're eternally loved by God and Christ should naturally lead us to some sort of response. If that's true, if Jesus Christ truly came over 2,000 years ago, born in this manger, and took to the cross and gave his life for us, if that's true, then what do we do with that? And that should lead us to a response of affection, to be people who are now united around our love for God. See, let's look at verses 6 through 8. We'll go back up here in John 17. This is what Jesus says. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your 
word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now this is significant. I want to look at something here. See, because Jesus says here that they have kept your word. Now, in the immediate context, obviously, Jesus is talking about his 11 disciples, men who had been with him over the last three years. Well, how had they kept his word? I mean, obviously, they're imperfect men. There's no way they followed the letter of the law perfectly, right? There's no, no way that they were perfect in their obedience. So when Jesus says they have kept your word, what is he referring to here? Well, I believe that what Jesus is pointing to is primarily belief. So when he says they've kept my word, kept your word, what he means is that they believed in the one that you sent. They've obeyed the gospel. They believe in Jesus Christ. See, when others dismiss and reject Christ, I, you can go back to, for example, John 6, the bread of life discourse, when all others abandon Jesus Christ, and Peter turns to him and he says, where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. See, they, these men had believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so when we look at verses 6 through 8 here, we see a couple things. It says, they have kept your word. It says that, uh, God, uh, I've given them your word in verse 8. Then it says, they've received them and have come to know I came from you, and they have believed. So there's received and believed, right, the word of God. So this is significant for us because as we talk about, well, how do I love God? How do I demonstrate that? How do I show my love for God? Well, the short answer is worshiping his son, Jesus. It's believing in him. Right? Jesus points to this reality, the necessity of this over and over again. He says, no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Right? If you recall in John 4, the encounter where uh, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, listen, lady, a time is coming where it ain't going to matter what mountain you're on because the way that you worship God is through the Son. Right? That's primary. So if you want to ask yourself, okay, what does it look like for me to love God? First and foremost, it's to love his Son, Jesus Christ. That's how we love God. But see, this is important, too, because it's making a significant distinction from God's people and all others. Right? If you are not one who worships and loves Jesus Christ, you cannot confidently say that you are in God's, uh, that you are in God's good graces. You can't say that you're one of his people apart from Jesus Christ. See, the hard truth is this. It's only those who have believed in Jesus Christ that are beneficiaries of these eternal promises. So all the things I talk about, God's eternal love, that's not yours if you're not in Christ. That might be a hard reality to some people this morning. But I can only come and stand on this stage and tell you what this book says. And Jesus makes that plain. See, there is a distinction between God's people that are in Christ and everybody else. See, the reality is that these loving truths, this loving reality doesn't apply to everyone that's ever lived. If you're here this morning and you haven't looked to Christ in faith, then you're outside of God's love. You're not an object of his affection. 
See, we talk about the birth of Christ and his first coming, and then we often point to the joy and the great anticipation we have for his second coming. If you're not covered by the blood of Christ, the second coming isn't something to rejoice about. In fact, the Bible tells us that the day of the Lord will be terror to those. I just want to be honest with you. But praise God, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have breath in your lungs and you have an opportunity to repent and believe today. 2 Corinthians 6.2 reminds us that today is the day of your salvation. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, look and don't take no whole lot of work. Look to Jesus. Look to him in faith. You have an opportunity to do so today. But again, I say all that to say that there is this distinction between God's people and everyone else. And so we ask ourselves, well, how does it play out for God's people to demonstrate their love for God? And I think simply it's a commitment to Christ and his word. I believe that the unity Christ's people have around him is around the love that he has for us and showing our love for him. It's marked by obedience. Right? That's why Jesus says they've kept my word. Listen, if you've been with us any amount of time, we've talked about this before. We've talked about the necessity of obedience to Christ's people. It's essential for followers of Christ, but it all begins with his love for us. You see, 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he has first loved us. See, this is significant because even God is the foundational motivation for loving God. Right? It starts with God. It all ends with God. But one of the outworkings of our love for him is this desire for obedience. See, Jesus even points to this reality himself earlier in this discourse. If you go back to John 14, 15, pretty well-known verse, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right then, later in that chapter, if you go to verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Friends, I think this is a simple principle to apply. If we love God, it should be evidenced by our obedience to his word. Now, again, that's difficult as sinful human beings who often operate in our flesh. That's going to be done imperfectly. I don't want to offer you some encouragement here. I don't want anybody to walk out of this room and say, well, man, I must not be saved. I don't always obey Christ. I don't always have this love for him. I must not be a Christian, right? That's going to happen imperfectly, right? Even the disciples who were with Jesus consistently did not perfectly obey his word. Listen, perfection is not attainable. We are being sanctified, though, praise God. We're being transformed, conformed to the image of Christ. But you're never going to do this perfectly. But if you are a Christian, here's a great place for you to really stop and take some inventory of your life to examine your own heart. And say, is my love for God my motivation? And is that shown by a consistent desire to obey him? Do I want to submit to the authority of God's word? Is my life marked by that? Or maybe it isn't. Again, I'm not asking for perfection. That's not what we're talking about. 
but is obedience to Christ and his word something you consider to be good and life-giving? Maybe it's burdensome for you. Again, if we're God's people and he loves us, how do we love him? Again, I think that's shown to a commitment to his word. Seeing those who have been ransomed by Christ, who understand the incredible sacrifice he's made on our behalf, we're united in our love for our Savior. So as his people, we should have this collective desire to keep his word, to obey his commands. Friends, I want to just offer you another reminder here that comes from the text. This is something Jesus says if we look at verses 14 through 16. Again, he says this. He says, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is a reminder to us that our love for Christ, our position in him, is going to cause us to live differently than the rest of the world. That we are going to be different. That we are going to be distinct. This is what loving obedience looks like. And it's going to cause us to be in opposition to the world. And that's okay. So we're supposed to be holy, to be set apart. We're supposed to have a particular view, a particular set of ideas and priorities. As God's people who love him, there should be things that are just more important to us than others. See, the world has its own set of values and principles and ideologies, and that's all fine and well. But as we attempt to live in this world as those who love the Lord our God, the way that we live should be different. See, our unity should be displayed through our commitment to Christ and his word. So here's a great place for us again to just stop and make some application. I want to ask you a question. Is your love for God a defining characteristic in your life? Is it something that compels you to live a certain way? It should be something that's ever present amongst God's people is our love for him. Right? That should be a foundational motivation for the things that we seek, for the things that we pursue, for the things that we value. So here's a great place to ask yourself this question. What is it that's driving me? Is it my love for God? I mean, this is so applicable even for this season. It's just overrun by consumerism and just buying things and ripping and running down the road. And we got to have this and we got to travel and we got to do this and we got to do that. And all those things are great. But what is your primary motivation What compels you to live, to seek and pursue the things that you do? Is it your love for God? And even primarily above that, his love for you. It's just something for us to ponder on. What motivates you? Is it your love for God? See, God has made us beneficiaries of his love. And because of that, we love him. See, the scriptures remind us of that over and over again, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Again, however imperfectly. 
And as I think about loving my family, loving my neighbors, even my vocation, like the opportunities that I have, obviously, again, it starts with God's love for us. Then even my love for him, it just naturally spills over into those relationships and those areas of my life. So I would just ask us as God's people, is that what we're united around as well? You see, God loves us. And in response, we love him. But finally, that love moves us to love each other. You see, the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus also says to love your neighbor as yourself. That's supposed to be a love that we have for each other, though, that's significant. You see, God's love for us certainly impacts our vertical relationship, but it impacts our horizontal relationships as well. You see, this idea of loving unity should spill into all of our relationships with our brothers and sisters. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. And it says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me as you loved me. So here Jesus repeats this phrase three times. He says, my desire is that they would be one, that they may become one, that they may be perfectly one. So here he's really emphasizing the importance of unity amongst the body. You see, there should be a particular type of unity amongst God's people that marks us off from everybody else. It should be demonstrated by our love for one another. There's a way that we love the world. There's a way that we love our neighbors. But then there's a unique way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Christ prays for his followers to be one. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about this idea of being unified. And I certainly don't want to suggest that we should be unified at the cost of truth. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's not unity at all costs above everything else. But our unity, our oneness should be based around the truth of Christ, but our love must be marked by a Christ-like love. Jesus even points to this as he ends his prayer here in verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, this is a great way to end this text by pointing once again to this idea of love, to the theme of loving unity. See, Jesus on multiple occasions throughout this discourse, see, if you recall, even this discourse, it goes back to John chapter 13. Jesus says, last night with his disciples. And from John 13 to even now, Jesus multiple times has reminded his disciples of the importance of loving one another. If you go to John 13, he washes their feet, right? And he says, to follow my example. And then at the end of John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Well, then he goes on in John 15, 12 to speak to his disciples. And he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. See, this is a significant command. And here in John 17, Jesus prays that the love with which the Father has loved him should be in us. See, brothers and sisters, that reminds us that our love should resemble Christ's love. It should be humble. It should be sacrificial. See, the kind of love that we have for each other should mirror the love that resides within the Godhead, the way that God loves his son. That's the kind of love that we should have for each other. Oh, boy, this is tough. See, that means that our love for each other should be unconditional. That means it must be steadfast. It must be unwavering. It should be unique. It should be decided. Right? There are no conditions to that. There are no strings attached. I don't get to pick and choose which of my brothers and sisters amongst the Christian community that I actually get to dedicate my love to. Right? There are no caveats to that. The kind of love that God has for his son is the kind of love that we must demonstrate to one another. You see, even if you want to be honest, if you want to be real, the Bible actually speaks about elevating the primacy of Christian relationship. Right? In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, do good to all people, but first to those within the household of faith. See, the unity that we show is surrounded around our love for one another. This isn't a new concept, people. This isn't something that we haven't talked about before. Right? I love what Paul does in, in Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it all. But in Ephesians 4, the first 14 verses, he writes about unity amongst the body. And he talks about being of one mind, of one body, one spirit. And then he ends that section. I do want to read verses 16, 15 and 16. And he says this, he says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, that's beautiful. That's part of the Spirit's work in our lives is that we would grow in our affections for one another. That as we understand God's love for us, shown through Christ, as that's continually revealed to us, you see, the Holy Spirit lives in us and helps us to grow in our love for our brothers and sisters. You see, when we're lovingly united this way, it shows the world the splendor of Christ. It shows the power of the gospel especially when our love and our unity for each other, as Pastor Tyler talked about a few weeks ago, man, that transcends any ethnic lines, any political lines, any social lines. None of that matters. We're lovingly united together as God's people. And again, that's hard to do. Some people are just harder to love than others. Amen? If you don't know, when you sit out for Christmas dinner, you'll find out but hey, the commandment is the same. Some of y'all laughed a little too hard at that because you got some focus in mind. 
Amen? And we're to be united around God's love for us, our love for him, and then our love for one another. But as I close, we're going to finish our time. You know, obviously these things all flow from one place. You know, it's, it's not significant or worth me bragging about my love for God. Because there are days where it's just, I feel cold, right? My love for God isn't anything to brag about. In fact, it's very flawed and it's very imperfect. And when I even consider my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that's nothing to write home about either. Because even as much as I love my, the, the, those within the household of faith, there are days where I do that imperfectly. There are days where I don't love them as I love myself. There are days where I don't elevate their needs above my own. I'm flawed even there. But the one thing that is worth talking about is God's love for us. See, because that changes everything. That's significant. See, that's the only thing that saves. My love for God can't save me. My love for you can't save me or you. But during this season, it's worth climbing to the mountaintops and shouting to the world that there's a God in heaven who loves his creation. And he's provided his son to bring salvation to sinners. Now that love is worth talking about. And that's what we need to go into the world and tell the lost. That we're not here because of Christmas trees or lights or decorations. It's not about extravagant gifts or purchases. The reason that the world should slow down and rejoice at this time of year is because God came to man. That's worth talking about. The incarnation. And my hope and my desire is that we would be a people who, even in the midst of this chaos and the consumerism and the conflict, that we would go boldly into the world with this message of hope. That we would be people who constantly point to the glory of our King. Brothers and sisters, when you leave this place, again, many of you are going to travel, maybe go see uh, family members, extended family, tonight, tomorrow, maybe the next week. You're going to get some opportunity to sit down with some folks that maybe you don't normally spend a lot of time with. There are a lot of wonderful things we could chat about. Politics, the economy, maybe those aren't wonderful, actually. My bad. <clears throat> Talk about the Niners, number one seed. Amen? <laughs> But seriously, sports, politics, all these things we could talk about, none of them save. It is only the hope that is in Christ Jesus that delivers men. Would we be people who consistently point to that truth and glorify our King for the good of humanity, for the glory of God? Let us pray. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that even in this season, even in the midst of all the chaos, all the hustle and bustle of shopping and travel plans and all of the things that demand our attention. 
that we can stop and we can rejoice that you sent your son to earth to live and to die and to rise again, to purchase the freedom of the lost. That, God, you came to men providing a way for us to be free. But we thank you for that truth this morning. Or that we are united under your love for us. And Father, I pray that we would be people who have hearts that love you, that you would stir our affections for Christ. That as we come in here week after week and even throughout our days when we're not gathered here on Sunday mornings, even in our homes, at our workplaces, that our hearts would grow in our love for you and that we would be a people who collectively worship Christ Jesus, who show our love for you through our obedience, through our commitment to your word, and Father, through our fellowship and our love for one another. Would we be people who constantly point the glory to our king, even in a time like this where others are just focused on so many other things. God, would we take the moment to step into those spaces, to enter into those conversations, pointing to the glory of the risen Savior who is Jesus Christ, to be reminded that over 2,000 years ago you were born in a stall, you took on flesh to save your people. What a wonderful truth that is that we can rejoice in every single day. Would we be people who live motivated by your love for us and in turn our love for you and our love for each other. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.